Obviously, we're in Luke chapter 13, and uh, we're talking about judgment again. So I know that you're excited uh, about that uh, type of a sermon, but uh, that's where we're at. This is what Jesus has to say to us, and so we get to talk about it. Um, when we left off two weeks ago uh, before the family service, uh, there was a, the, the end of that passage, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 57 through 59, says, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make every effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penalty. Jesus has been speaking about judgment. He's been talking about his judgment. And he's communicating to these people that sin is a debt, and they, have, they, they, owe, they owe a debt to someone, and that, that someone that they owe a debt to is God. And so it's, it's essentially saying this, that God is our accuser, and Jesus is saying, before you get to the magistrate, before you get put in prison, make sure that you settle accounts with God before death comes. Make sure you settle accounts, because if you get to that judgment, if you get to that judge, if you get to that finality, you will forever be damned. And it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard thing to, to really talk about. But Jesus really spends some time talking about judgment. Jesus spends some time communicating to us what we need to hear about the judgment. And so it's, it's a difficult message uh, to hear today. Johnny Cash actually recorded a song called God's Gonna Cut You Down. And it's, it's a song that really goes along with the passage that Heather just read. And it's, it's kind of imposing. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to, uh, to listen to. But let me read uh, some of the lyrics to you. He says, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go tell the midnight writer. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. It's a nice message. Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me in the voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still when he said, John, go do my will. Now, I think that song really kind of expresses what this passage is saying to us. The passage is really communicating to us that we must repent or God is going to cut us down. I, I don't know how else to say that. We must repent or you will be cut down. It's not something that we like to think about. It's not something that we like to talk about very often. And that's because it seems pretty imposing. It seems pretty imposing because our world does, does not buy into the idea of a morality that does not come from themselves. We think this way as well. I, I would call it a, a new morality, and it's not necessarily new to us. In fact, it's new since the garden, and it has been progressing. It's been progressive, if you will, uh, since the very beginning of time. And as humanity continues to find ways of sinning against God and, and sinning against their fellow man, what humanity often does is that they, they are working to try to make themselves feel okay about the decisions that they've made. 
And so what we have today is we have a world that's continually digressing into an immorality that continues to go and, and, and continues to, to move in this direction. You think about what's happening in our school system here in our town today as they work to try to indoctrinate our kids with the idea that trans, transgenderism is, uh, is something that they should do, uh, that they can be in relationship with uh, same-sex partners or even uh, you know, uh, heterosexual relationships as well with no fear of consequences, with no problems there. Uh, there just all kinds of things that have happened uh, just in our, our school district, in, uh, in our world today, as our world continues to reframe what morality is. They try to continually say what morality actually is. And they miss the, the, the reality that our world is falling apart. Suicides are increasing. And why is it? It's because we're getting further and further away from the truth, from the reality, that there is no such thing as a new morality, but that, the, that there is a righteousness that comes from God that only can come from God, that God is the one who is allowed to expect that, and he demands it from his created beings. A difficult thing to hear. Now look at the passage with me, if you will. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, there were some present at that very time. Stop there with me for just a moment. What Luke is trying to communicate to us is that all of this talk, what Jesus has just said at the end of chapter 12 there, as he's talking about settle accounts with your accuser, that is God, before you get to the magistrate so that you uh, can uh, avoid going to prison until you've paid the very last pe penny. He's saying... There were people that were present as Jesus was speaking there. A lot of times we can read these passages and kind of miss how Luke is setting it up. And Luke is trying to communicate to us something, to, something to us, which is that there is a theme here. And the theme is this, that Jesus is talking about judgment. Now these people are going to reply to that. These people were there at that very time. And they begin to tell him a story. They told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances, but we, we kind of have an idea of what possibly could have happened, and that is that Pilate, who was a government official, had sent officers of the law into the temple and attacked uh, these people while they were ma uh, making sacrifices. So these are uh, Jesus people, these are Jewish uh, people who had been sacrificing at the temple, they were attacked, and their blood mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. And so a historian, a historian by the name of Josephus, he has some various stories. And so we, we don't know the exact story as to what took place there, but we have an idea that there was some opposition there in between these two parties. And so what they bring this up. They bring up the story, and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, what about that time uh, when those people were, uh, were making sacrifices there, they must have really done something sinful for them to be attacked while they are making sacrifices. So what they're looking at here is, there, is Jesus is talking about judgment, and they're saying, yeah, those people were judged. We can see that that happened because they were killed in that circumstance. And this goes along with what happened in another passage, John chapter 9. Jesus walks by a, a, a blind man, and his disciples say, Jesus, whose sin caused this, his or his parents? Did, did their sin cause this, uh, this ailment that he has? 
So this is an ideology that they had during that day, that like your sin causes your misfortune or causes your death. It was a way for these people to, in a sense, say, those are the bad people over there. They're the ones, and we can see that that's why they were judged. That's why they were killed. It is because uh, they were sinful, and Jesus responds, and he lets us in on what they were actually thinking. When he says in verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And the answer to that is yes. They did believe that. They believed that these Galileans who had been sacrificing in the temple and were attacked there, they believed that they were worse sinners than everybody else. They believe that they that misfortune happened to them because of uh, their sin. That's what took place. And so Jesus says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean you're also going to be attacked in the temple? I don't think he means that at all. What Jesus is communicating to us today is he's saying everybody dies at some point, whether it's by natural causes or by unnatural causes, whether it's through misfortune or violence or, or something like that. Everyone dies at some point, and Jesus says, you're also likewise going to perish eternally at the judgment. You're also going to perish at that judgment. You're also going to be taken to the magistrate and be taken to prison if you do not repent. Jesus sets up one thing, and he, he basically says this. He says, you must recognize that you have violated God's law, that you have violated who God is, that you have not held to the standard either. And so Jesus tells them a story. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders? And that word offenders there has a connotation of debt. They were debtors. Jesus is including the idea of someone being in debt from the previous passage. Do you think that they were worse offenders, debtors, than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus is communicating something. The universality of sin, the universality of the, the, re, the, the reality that all of us are sinners, that all of us have a debt that we owe, that every single one of us has the same exact problem. And whether we die early or we die late or what have you doesn't make any difference. What makes the difference is this, is whether you've repented prior to death. And so Jesus wants to communicate everyone should repent prior to physical death. Otherwise, there's serious consequences. There's a serious problem that comes from that. Jesus wants them to know that they can't make up their own moral standard. They can't make up their own new morality. They can't take that in and believe that somehow they are righteous and everyone else is wrong. And guess what our problem in the church is? We get the same issue. We can point at what's happening, whether it's in the school district or in our, our city or in our nation or in our world, and we can say, yeah, but they're doing it wrong. Yeah, but they're whatever. And Jesus wants to say to you and I today that we also have a debt to pay, that we also must repent. 
And I believe that there's many that are in the church today that have never actually repented, that have never actually taken that step and said, I repent, not just saying it, but experiencing it. We've acknowledged the existence of God. We've acknowledged the, the, the cross, but we haven't actually repented. And so I think Jesus tells us this next story so that we can really see what's happening here. Look at verse six. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Now, if you remember what Heather just read here a few moments ago, there's the man who owns the vineyard. He's the one who planted the uh, fig tree in his vineyard, or he, he, had it, uh, he had it planted. That man represents God, represents God the Father. We also have the vine dresser. That man represents Jesus. And so Jesus is telling us a story about how we should view our life and our relationship with God. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Who's the fig tree? I'm, I'm the fig tree. You're the fig tree. We, are, this is, we should see ourselves as a fig tree. And what's interesting about this is that we have been planted in a piece of property that is not our own. In essence, we've been created by the creator God. We've been planted in this soil of which we do not own. We've been planted and we do not own ourselves. We are owned by God. And as such, what we must understand is this, is that we don't get to make the rules. We don't get to decide what is morally right and what is morally wrong. We don't get to determine what all of that is. There's some things that we know inherently that are right and wrong, but ultimately what's happening in our world today is that we've created a new morality, but we don't get to do that. And the reason is this, is because we didn't create us. We don't own this world. We are rather owned in this world. Now that has got to be kind of a difficult thing to hear, that I don't own myself. That I, that I don't get to make the rules for my life, that someone else has made the rules for me. This is incredibly difficult to understand. It's incredibly difficult to receive. People balk at this idea of, I owe God something. I don't owe God anything. I don't even agree that God exists. Or, I mean, I, I don't care about God. He can do whatever he wants. Or whatever it is that somebody might say, our problem is this. Our problem is that we do not want to recognize the ownership that God has over us. God owns you. God owns me. God dictates what should and should not be in our life. Why does he have the right to do so? Because he owns us. Your personal effects, the things that you own, the property, the car, the, the house, uh, the toys, the, the stuff, the money. You own it. You get to do what you want with it. God has created you in his image, and he wants you to see something. If he created you, if he made you, if he came, came up with you, he has you, he owns you. And what is your response to that? But Jesus says a man had a fig tree, and he planted it, in his vineyard, it is his vineyard, it is his fig tree, he gets to do with it what he likes. 
And if God wants to cut it down, he can cut it down. And Johnny Cash is right. God's going to cut you down if you don't figure one thing out. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. This idea of seeking fruit is that God looks for from you and from me, from his created people, beings. He looks for righteousness from you. His definition of righteousness. God looks for righteousness from you and from me. He demands it. Because as the owner of the fig tree, he believes that he can demand that righteousness, that you work properly according to his will. Now, what, is, what are his list of demands? His list of demands are found, not just here, but this is a summary of it, the Ten Commandments. Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? Have you thought about them? You, know, you ever wonder why? I, I'm not necessarily a huge advocate of having them plastered up all over public buildings and things like that, but uh, maybe it would be a good thing. But obviously, we've been removing those from our society. Why? Because they make us feel nervous. They make us feel owned. They make us feel like we owe something. Look at the Ten Commandments with me. Chapter 20, verse 2 of Exodus I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I own you. That's what he says. First commandment, you will have no other gods before me. You will not have power. You will not have success. You will not have sex. You will not have, you will not have, you will not have notoriety. You will not have good standing. You will not have relationship. You will not have family. You will not have anything, any other God before me. What's our world say? Have any other God but that God. Why does our world recoil from the idea or from the name Jesus Christ? Why is, why is Jesus Christ the swear word? Why is he, what, no one's yelling Buddha or Muhammad or anything like that. Why? Why Jesus? It's because of his name. It's because of who he is. You will have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You should not have any type of idolatrous thing that you bow down and worship. Don't have another God that's kind of out there. Don't have another God that's right here. Something that you bow down to, that you look at, that you, that you worship, that you, that you go after. It can't be your car. It can't be uh, your money, sex, power. It can't be any of those things. You cannot have another God. In their day, it was literal carved beings that they would carve out. In our day, they are things in everyday life that are idols. The third one is, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. Like I just said, why is Jesus... Christ, the swear word, because there's power in it, because he matters. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. God commands rest. Why does he command rest? Because otherwise, 
I turn work into a God. That's my problem. I turn productivity into a God. I feel really bad about myself when I'm not productive. If I don't feel like I did something like, you know, uh, mowing the lawn or raking leaves and sticks. I got a bunch of oak trees on my property and I constantly having to rake. But I, I, in part, I do it because it looks beautiful. But on, on, a, on another level, I do it because it makes me feel good about myself. But God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You should rest. You should not have any other God in your life that you have to worship and serve, but you should rest on that day. You should honor your father and mother. Number five, anybody dishonor their, their parents ever? Anybody dishonor, uh, uh, dishonoring them? Number six, you shall not mur murder. Jesus says if you're angry with your brother, it's as though you've killed him. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. If you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. You shall not steal. Anybody cheated on their, their taxes? Withheld from the tax man? Added a little bit more on, on a, to a time card? Taken something that they shouldn't have taken? You shall not bear false witness, number nine, against your neighbor. Anybody speak out against somebody when they shouldn't have? Number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or his, anything that, you're, that is your neighbor's. God owns you. God owns the land on which you've been planted. God created you. And he has the right to demand from you fruit. He has the right to demand from you Righteousness. He has the right to call you into existence and to call you to righteousness. And that's what he's saying. It says in verse 7 from Luke chapter 13, and he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Jesus tells us a story that this is what God is like in this sense. He's given a, a period of time, and he has the right to demand it, and justice demands that either you pay up or it's over. Cut it down, he says. Why should it use up uh, the ground? But what can the tree do about it? If you're the tree and I'm, and I'm the tree, what can the tree do about it? Here's a tree that's been planted on, on some ground that's not his own. There's a, an expectation of bearing fruit. And that tree can't bear fruit. What can the tree do about it? Well, guess what? You and I are in the same situation. We are owned by our creator. He has demands for our righteousness. We're not providing it. How can we provide it when we're a tree? There's nothing that we can do. And men and women, this is our problem. Our problem is that we cannot seem to produce the repentance even for the fact that we have not produced the righteousness that God demands. We cannot provide it. The tree is unable to provide any kind of change so then, how's that going to 
change? How's that going to be different? How's that going to work? We need the vine dresser. And he answered him, that is, the vine dresser answered the owner, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The vine dresser steps in and says, hang on a minute. Just, just be merciful for just a moment. And what's astonishing is this, is that the owner of the fig tree, the father, has every right to demand from its created being, from its fig tree, the father has every right to demand that. And it is just, and it is right, and it is good that righteousness should come out of your life. And yet the son says, Jesus says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Just be merciful. And astonishingly, the father acquiesces and says, okay, okay, I'll, I'll allow it for right now. I'll allow it for right now. So how does this repentance come about? How does this take place from the vine dresser? What's the vine dresser going to do? John Bunyan has a sermon about this where he says, Barren fig tree, see how the Lord Jesus by these very words suggesteth the cause of thy fruitless soul. The things of this world lie too close to thy heart. The earth with its things has bound up thy roots. Thou art an earthbound soul. And then uh, a commentator says, then Bunyan has Jesus, the caretaker, address the owner, the father. Lord, I will loosen his roots. I will dig up this earth. I will lay his roots bare. My hand shall be upon him by sickness, by disappointments, by cross providences. I will dig about him until he stands shaking and tottering until he be ready to fall. How does the vine dresser go about bringing about this fruit, this repentance? How does Jesus go about bringing about repentance in our lives? How does that take place? Well, the first thing is this. He breaks up our grasp of hard soil. He breaks up our grasp as, as a, a fig tree of all of the stuff of this world, our grasp of this earth and all of the things that we have and all of the gods that we've created, all of the ways that we have uh, determined that we matter, all of the ways that we've said, I, I matter to this world, I have a name. He breaks up the hard soil. And how does he break up the hard soil? I will dig around it, he says. I don't know how much you've, you've, you've done that before, but I've got areas, obviously, on my little property there where sometimes I have to break up hard soil, and I have to take a pickaxe, 
And I have to sit there and I have to beat that soil. I have to pick it out of there. And it's like Bunyan says, It's, it's, it's that it's, it's, it's beating this soil. It's, it's, it's taking something away. It's loosening its grip. It's, it, and it begins to feel like it's tottering and like it's, it's shaking as though the tree is not going to stand. But what is that? What's happening in our life there? Bunyan goes on and says, Thus I say, deals the Lord Jesus oftentimes with the barren professor, the fruit tree that is barren, that has not produced fruit, the fruit tree, the, the person who has professed Jesus Christ as Savior, the person who is not producing fruit, or maybe somebody who is not even a Christian or, or who, who doesn't profess to be a Christian. This is somebody who is not producing fruit in their life. And they see it and they know it and they've tried all of these things. What a blessing it is that God shows you that when, when you see that you have no fruit from the things that you've done. When you come to the end of, you got the job, you got the money, you got... You got the car, you got the house, you got the wife, you got the kids, you got whatever it is, you got the spouse, and you get to the end of that and you realize, I don't have it. I, I, I don't have it. I'm not producing fruit. The person who experiences this, Jesus is dealing with you. He says, he diggeth about him. He smiteth one blow at his heart, another blow at his lusts, a third at his pleasures, a fourth at his comforts, another at his self-conceitedness. Thus he diggeth about him. This is the way to take bad earth from the roots and to loosen his roots from the earth. Barren fig tree, see here the care, the love, the labor, and way which the Lord Jesus, the dresser of the vineyard, is fair to take with thee, if haply thou mayest be made fruitful. Jesus in his grace and mercy perhaps has taken you to that place as he smiteth your lusts, as he continues one blow after another after another on your pleasures, on your desires, on the new morality that we have soaked up from this earth. And he begins to chew up that soil and he begins to break up hard ground. Men and women, many of us are just in hard ground and we're fruitless because we have no repentance. We have not acknowledged God as God. We make excuses for the reasons why we sin and in so doing say, God, you're not right about this. But Jesus has another way for you because the first way is this, is that he digs around, he breaks up, our grasp on the hard soil of this earth. And the second way is he adds the nutrients. He adds the fertilizer that are needed for growth. What is that fertilizer? The fertilizer is Jesus himself. The fertilizer is Jesus himself because of this. When you understand that your sin and my sin, my lack of fruit bearing is so great, is, is, is so massive, 
that God himself had to die for you, when you, when you begin to see that, when you begin to see that Jesus was broken for you, when you begin to see that Jesus was, was not, it wasn't just the soil around him, but it was he himself who was broken into pieces, who was tilled up. It was he himself who experienced the tower falling on him, the tower of the wrath of God that fell on him in your place. When you begin to see that, when you begin to see that Jesus is the one who takes that from you, because of all of your lack of fruit bearing, because of all of your denial and my denial of God's ownership over us, because of all of those things, when, when Jesus shows us that, when he puts on the fertilizer around the tore up soil, like when you see that money, sex, power, notoriety, fame are not gonna work, when you realize it doesn't matter how much you talk about yourself on social media, like it still doesn't work. You don't feel that much better about yourself. Or you might for a short time, but it's short-lived because of the new morality. Because just as quickly as they can take you up, they can take you down. When you realize that you cannot produce fruit on your own, when you see that everything has been laid waste and Jesus has been faithful blow after blow after blow to dig out around the roots of your heart so that you can release the things that you thought that you always wanted, the things that you thought you always needed, the, way, the, the, the comforts, the pleasures. When you begin to see that and you begin to realize that, you'll begin to see something else. Well, God's laws are really true. I really can't get life by going my own way with my sexuality, with my gender. I really can't get life through money and a job. I really can't get life from anything else that this world provides. And that is why God has been telling me that I should have no other gods before him. When you begin to see that, then you begin to see, like, that's not just a thing that I experience, that I enjoy, that I like, my house, my job, my wife, my kids, my money, whatever. When you realize that's not just a thing, it's not just productivity, it's another God. And when Jesus lays the ax to the roots, the, the pick to the roots, and he begins to pick out the hard soil, and it's painful. It's painful. When you just go, man, what have I been working for all my life? Like I went after it, and I went after it, and I went after it, and then it's just like, it just dissipates in my hand. It's like, it's like a sandcastle that just, the sun came and blew it away, blew it down, and I thought that I always wanted it, and guys, this is what we do. This is what we go after. And Jesus is so faithful. And this is how he's faithful. God's way of bringing grace into your life is for you to be able to see that your idols, that your false gods, that the things that you've been going after 
all of these years and all of this time are really going to fill you. He does that by allowing you to become more sinful. He allows you to find, like, if you feel like that's the way that you're going to go, if you feel like that's what you need to do, if you think you own you, if you think you get to make the rules, if you think that you can read the Bible this way, and well, I don't think it actually says that. If that's what you think, then just go ahead and do that for a while. It's as, it's, it's, it's as though God is saying to the child, saying, okay, you keep trying to touch the stove, and I'm just going to let you this time because I, apparently you just need to feel it. And this is what God does for us. He allows us to feel the heat. He allows us to experience the pain. He allows the soil around the tree to be broken up until it's just soft. And then what does he do? He adds the gospel. The gospel is this. Believe it or not, it starts with God's going to cut you down. Whether you know it or not, God's going to cut you down. You think that you have all the time in the world, Jesus is saying. You think that it's just those people who are sinful, that they're the ones who are going to experience this? Everybody dies at some point, and God is going to cut you down if you do not repent. God is going to cut you down because he is just but he is also merciful beyond measure how because he was cut down for you God was cut down in your place the fertilizer around the tree is the fact that I deserve to be cut down, and yet God himself was cut down in my place. He was tortured. He was impaled. He suffered. He bled out and died. His body was broken for me because I did not listen to my owner. I did not obey when it came to righteousness. And I've just been saying, you know what? I'm just gonna create my own morality and I'm just gonna live by my own standards and I'm just gonna make myself happy. And God's allowed you to see this. In our world today, the chaos, the depression, the anxiety, the suicide, the lack of peace, the discomfort, uh, the pain, the anguish that comes from everybody thinking I'll make my own rules. And Jesus says this. You got to repent. And the command from Scripture is repentance and faith. Here's what repentance is. Listen to Wayne Grudem. He, he, he says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. A renouncing of it. And a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience. A lot of times we can think that repentance is just comes from a bunch of people who like to just cry in public. Or we think it's, it's this mechanical thing that we go through. We read a, a prayer, yeah, I'm sinful, yeah, whatever, and then we go on. It's not emotional or mechanical. 
with something else. It's something deep in here that says, for a long time, I've said what I'm doing is right. You may have called yourself a Christian for a long time, and the truth is you never really repented because you never really thought that there was anything wrong with you. You, you know, I, I please the, the, the owner of the vineyard. I'm, I'm doing what he wants me to do. What do I have to repent for? I've heard people say that before. But repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's an acknowledgement that, you know what? I could die tomorrow. You could die away, uh, on the way home today. My, my two friends, I can't remember if I told you this or not earlier in the sermon, I had two friends. They're, not, they're acquaintances, I should say, from, from a school that I went to when I was, you know, up till 12 years old. Both of them died a week apart from each other. One through a tr tragic incident in a canoe and another one, I think, from some type of disease. You don't know. But unless you repent... You're gonna be you're gonna be in the same place. You're gonna perish spiritually. And God is reaching out to you this morning, and He's He's saying this: You cannot depend on your ability to save you. You cannot depend on the idea that, like, well, those people are worse than me. That's why they're experiencing that. You cannot depend on your own standard of morality. You must come back to the owner because He owns you. He makes the rules. And he says you must repent. And so repentance is this. Repentance is, is taking all of the gods that I have. What, what are your gods? What are the things that you have to have to feel good about yourself? What are the things that you must have to feel like everything's okay? For some of you, it is money. For some of you, it is sex. For some of you, it is power. For some of you, it, it is notoriety. For some of you, it is fame. For some of you, it is even good things like family. For some of you, it is feeling like you got a job. Jesus says you have to take all of those things that you've actually been dependent upon to feel okay. You have to take all those things and you have to say, I'm no longer depending on the false God. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus says, set that aside. It, it doesn't even mean that like, you're gonna do that perfectly. It's an acknowledgement that I have been dependent on that and a, and a sincere desire to say, I no longer wanna make that my God. And it is one motion that says, I'm no longer going to depend, trust, have faith in that thing and it's turning and it's saying, I am now trusting in Jesus the way that I trusted in money. I'm trusting in Jesus the way that I have been trusting in fulfillment, pleasure. I'm trusting in Jesus in all these ways. See, this is the life of a Christian. As we get closer to Jesus, the pickier he gets. I think Beth Moore said that. And we begin to see... Oh, like I'm seeing right now, productivity is my God. I have to be productive, otherwise I don't feel good about myself. And now I'm having to say, man, I've got to confess that. I've got to repent from that. And I've got to say, it is not in my productivity that makes me valuable to people, 
to my family, to the world. It is not my productivity. I am now going to trust in Jesus' productivity for me. Repentance is, is one half of the motion, one side of the coin. Repentance is the beginning of faith. It's saying, I'm no longer doing this, I'm doing that. But some of you said, you know what, I, I believe that Jesus exists. I believe that he's alive. I believe that he's around. I believe that he, he, he what, is a historical figure. But all that you've done is that you've said that Jesus exists. You didn't trust him. You didn't trust in him. And some of you have never trusted in, in Jesus Christ before. Some of you have never made God your God. And you've had all other kinds of gods before you. And now you're beginning to see, and I hope that you're beginning to see what's happening, that your gods are failing you. And guess what? That's the father saying, I should cut him down. I should cut her down. And yet I'm going to have mercy on him or her. And allow Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, to begin to pummel that soil, to, be, to begin to break up hard soil. Is Jesus breaking you up? Is Jesus breaking up hard soil? If he is, now's the time to repent. Don't put it off. Don't stop and think about it. Don't, don't try to decide till later. You have to repent. You must reckon, and it's, 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 it's simple. And yet it's the hardest thing that you'll ever do. It's simple because of this. I've totally messed up. I don't own me. I don't own this earth. I don't own my body. I don't own anything about me. And yet I've done whatever I've wanted with this body. I've acted in whatever way that I desired to. I said whatever came to my mind. And I just said, hashtag just saying, thinking that that was going to make it okay. Well, that's me, and that's what I want, that's what I desire, and I am the measure of my own rules. And it's saying this, God, you are the owner of the vineyard. You have created me, you have planted me, and I have no rights over what is right and wrong. And I've repeatedly gone against you. And I've sought after other gods and I've desired other things, and now I see the uselessness of that. You can trust Jesus today by repenting and placing your faith, your trust, your hope, your dependence on him. If we get that right, oh, that's what needs to happen. You want to see revival happen? You want to see the church awakened away from politics? You want to see the, you want to see the church get a new God other than a political party? That's what has to happen. Repentance. Some of, some of us have some serious repenting to do in that area. Let's, let's be done with that. Let's go to the true God, the true political leader, the true and only one who is merciful and gracious and he's holding off the judgment on you. And he's just saying, just a little while longer, just a little while longer. He's beckoning you. He desires you. He wants you. He loves you intensely. And he's lovingly destroying all the things that you have dependent on. He's lovingly taking them away. Thank him for it and trust him. Let's go to the Lord's table here.
This is why we do communion together, and it is to recognize all of the ways that we've served other gods in the past few days. Maybe this morning, maybe right now, maybe you're seeing it. But one of the reasons why I stop us and I say, can we take a moment and just process where we're, where we're at with God, where our sin lies, where we have tried to be a God unto ourselves by creating our own standard of righteousness because we need to recognize where we need Jesus. So would you bow your heads with me? And I just want you to answer this question for yourself. Whatever you're thinking about right now, whether it's the, the Super Bowl or whether you're into the commercials or whatever it is you're into, could we just forget about that for a second? Would you just take a quiet moment just ask this question. God, what are, what are the gods that I serve this week? We covered the Ten Commandments this morning. There's, there has to be an area that we failed. Okay, where Where's the broken relationships in my life that came as a result of my desire to be my own God, to make my own standard of righteousness? And then I want you to thank Jesus because this is what Jesus has to say to you. Dude, I love you. I love you so much. I care about you intensely. You keep thinking that you need something other than me. You keep thinking that one more thing's gonna make you happy. But the bread that you hold in your hand right now is a representation of how much I love you. And I gave my body for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, man, I love you so much that it wasn't like that I just kind of got beat up, but I, I let my blood be poured out. It was a full release. It was complete redemption. I gave everything for you. Won't you allow this to fertilize the soil of your heart and to bring about reconciliation with God, with me? Jesus says, this is my blood which was poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. I pray that we'd live in that reality and allow that to fertilize the soil of our lives. It's in your name.